0: turn to Romans chapter 14. And I know that we got a lot of concerned wives, a few girlfriends out there about the whole men's retreat. And I want you to know, everybody is, is fine. And I left last night, there were no major injuries to report. Okay. So I think, I think they're going to come back okay. We got through uh, skeet shooting, ultimate Frisbee dreams, no major incidents to report. So I'm sure everybody's encouraged by that. All right. So. Rome, now that your minds are settled, we can find Romans fourteen. You know, really, when you come to the scriptures, there is no doubt that God wants unity among His people. Okay, you find it in the Old Testament. Really interesting. Right before Jesus goes to the cross in John chapter seventeen, we have Jesus praying, and we actually have that recorded. And he prays that uh, his disciples will have safety from evil, that they're going to persevere through suffering. But the final thing he prays for is unity among his people. And he's actually praying not only just for the disciples, but for those who are going to believe in Christ as a result of their ministry. In fact, you can find it. John 17, verse 20, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that? That is future believers. That's us. What is he praying for? That they may all be One, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I'm praying that they'll be one, and a watching world will see this unity in Christ, this unity together, and they will, like, come to a place where they're believing, and they're convinced that the living God is in our midst. Now, clearly, unity was on the Savior's mind right before the cross, and Unity does not mean uniformity, that we're all exactly alike. It's just like we're all just coming down an assembly line and every single Christian is going to look absolutely the same. That is not the intent. For instance, you can't ignore that we're all different. We have different DNA. We've got different life experiences. We've got different ways we make decisions. We have different viewpoints, different opinions, different preferences. We're going to be different, but what God is saying in the scriptures as that he wants us unified. And so some people say, well, you know, I know we got a lot of problems and diversity in the church and all these issues tearing us apart. I sure wish we had the good old days, right? The old army days, as the Aggies would say, right? Back in the first century, where there weren't any problems, right? But all you have to read is the New Testament and realize that unity in the midst of a lot of diversity was a major issue. How is it possible that you and I, how can believers truly have sincere unity in the midst of so much diversity? I mean, what are we supposed to do about all these potentially decisive issues? If you look at where we left off in Romans 13:14, as we make our way through the book of Romans, he said, verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Our flesh likes to divide. We like to feel superior to others, right? We've got pride that's worked its way through our heart and life and our mind. And it's like the modus operandi for a lot of people. To divide, I'm better than you, I'm separated from you, I do this, I don't do what you do. That makes me superior to you. Now if you think like, yeah, I'm not really a judgmental person, don't really struggle with being divisive. I want you to think about that for a minute. There's a guy by the name of John Burke, he wrote a recent book, and uh, he assumed that he was not a judgmental person. But just in case he was wrong, he did this little experiment. For a whole week, he took track of any judgments that he made about other people. And this is what he discovered. I'll read you a brief excerpt. Judging others is fun. Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room. Judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm moody. But I've got a good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer of condemnation for his bad breath. Some may be thinking, hey, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's a correction that values with mercy, and there's a correction that devalues with judgment. I watch the news, and I condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people I can judge as sinful, ingor- ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car... And I drive and I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving test. And I throw in a little condemnation on our Department of Public Safety for just good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find the things that I'm looking for. And all the while being tortured with Muzak. Who picks that music anyway? I stand on the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because... Look, people, it says ten items or less, and I can count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage checker, what is she wearing, focus and work so we can just get out of here? And he goes on to write, You know, judging is our favorite pastime. And if we're honest, but we're not. We're great at judging the world around us by standards. We would highly resent being held to. Judging makes us feel good, Because it puts us in a better light than others. You don't have to go to school, take a class on being judgmental. Guess what? It is built into your DNA. Have you noticed? Let me just tell you some of the issues that are divisive in churches today. In case you're like, well, I can't think of any. Let's try this on for size. For instance, movies and theater. Should Christians go to a commercial theater? How about cosmetics? How much makeup is enough? Should you wear it all, huh? How about alcohol? Major issue. Actually, this week, I had one of the guys at the Men's Retreat wanted to talk with me about that issue. How about the use of tobacco? Card playing, you know, and it's association with gambling. Should you play cards? Can you play fish with your kid using those? uh, I I don't know. Church could divide on something like that, right? How about dancing? Ooh. How about fashion? I mean, is it appropriate to wear clothing that's modest, but that is fits in contemporary? Or do you pretty much need to wear polyester only and be about 12 decades behind? So that if that I'm holy, can't you tell? I'm wearing a leisure suit, right? I mean, wh- where is it? Well, we're quick to pass some judgments. Here's one. Bible translation used. Well, what version of the Bible do we have? If you don't have a particular one in some churches, oh, you... You have a worldly, corrupt translation. You have forsaken the faith if you got a Bible like that. There's only one version. Use the one that Jesus used, right? Not even the name that is. I know some of you have been in churches like that. Okay, sports. There are some young people that think that to be involved in competitive sports is sinful and ego-exalting. Others are like, what are you talking about, man? Sports is fine. God gave His bodies. We should use them. Here's one. Music. You know, there's a really heated controversy on music. In fact, it'd be interesting just like how much you view people by the kind of music that they're listening to. Like, they listen to that, they must be what, right? Here's another one. What color the carpet should be? The right kind of pulpit or stage decor or like material wealth. You are like sizing people up, maybe you see someone and they get like a new car and like Initially, you're like, oh, that's an awesome car. I wish I had that car, but then, oh, you know what? You think you go and say, you know, don't you think you spent a little too much on, on your car? i like, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty happy with my car. I mean, don't you think that some of that money would have been any better used in the leprosy fund? They're like, no, I don't know, but we know what's happening, right? We're, we're passing judgment, and we're sizing people up. What are they wearing? What kind of purse does she have? What kind of ride do they have these days? We're really quick to pass judgment. Here's another one. Christian schools or public education or homeschool or co-ops or private school or how often you should have communion or altar calls do you know that there is no one in this room today that holds the exact same opinion on all of these issues and we could list more so what are we to do what are we to do on these issues that the scriptures are pretty silent on there's really no single verse that, like, it tells us this Now, we're talking about secondary issues, non-essential issues. But when it comes to the essential issues, deity of Christ, his return, the gospel of grace, the authority of the word, there's not, like, room for debate whether Jesus is God. It's clearly spelled out. They are cardinal, non-essential issues. They are primary. we, We can't, like, hold difference of opinions. There's only one truth on that. But there's plenty of other secondary issues. And, you know, we also, um, there's behavior that is outlined in Scripture that for Christians to engage in is sinful. It's not open for discussion. Fornication, adultery, th- stealing, theft, homosexual behavior. The Scriptures clearly spell it out as we've been called from that kind of life. May have been part of us, but no longer. And we're not like, well, we just got different opinions on that. Especially on the whole living together issue. That's, that's a big one. We are, though, supposed to have unity. Now, one guy said, you know, if you want to see the difference between having, like, unity without being unified, what you want to do is you want to take two alley cats, you tie their tails together, and you put them over a clothesline. You got unity, but they're not unified, right? They're tearing each other apart. That's not what the scriptures are calling for. If you and I, we want to know what unity looks like in the midst of all the diversity we've got going on, Romans 14, this is our passage, verses 1 through 13. It's going to tell us how we can do it. First thing you and I need to know is that we need to receive one another with grace. You might want to take some notes because this is how you and I are to live. Receive one another with grace. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. He says, now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions the word accept means receive or to welcome and you are to accept them that are weak in faith the idea of weak here means to doubt or to hesitate or to be timid it's actually not derogatory usually when we say to someone you're weak that's like you got a lot of issues or a problem but actually he's talking about a condition of like development and you need to understand that we all develop at different levels it's just like children you know they develop at different levels they you start off as an infant, and you kind of grow, and you start maturing and developing. That is natural for physical growth, and it's natural for spiritual growth. And so he's saying those that are weak. So like the weak Jew, Jewish believer that they, they now believe in Christ, they had a really difficult time setting aside Jewish rituals and especially the Sabbath. I mean, this has been practiced for generations. It was given in the Torah. It's in God's Word. They had lived this way. Now they had come to Christ, but like. I, it is very hard to set aside the sabbath or jewish rituals that they had practiced or special holy days and for the gentile believer who is weak in the faith as the text would say like they were like they were saved out of a pagan ritual religion sacrificing meat to idols oftentimes there was a lot of sexual morality involved in their quote-unquote worship before christ days and like whoa, I don't want nothing to do with it, and so they were trying to figure out how you live. But notice the text says that you and I are to receive people with grace. We're to accept them. And he says, verse 2, one person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. And so, uh, an understanding of what it means to be in Christ, Jesus actually declared all foods clean, and that means that you could partake in them. Well, if you were, came from a pagan background where meat was sacrificed to idols, and to know that what this looked like is they'd, they'd sacrifice, they'd burn some of this meat. Some of the meat was sometimes eaten by the folks that were quote-unquote worshiping, and the rest was sold in the market. Okay? Well, people would buy that. And if you came from a background like I know that that animal was sacrificed to an idol, ah, I don't want anything to do with it. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna be safe. I'm just gonna eat vegetables. And there are Jewish people that would do the exact same stuff. I'm going to stay away from meat. I'm just going to eat vegetables. I'm going to go vegan. I'm going to, I'm going to be a vegetarian. But he's saying, you know what? There are some that they're, they feel like they can, that's how they have to live. How are you to treat them? There are some folks that say you can't have bacon with your eggs. You can't have sausage on your deep dish pizza. And there are really two kind of reasons why someone would be considered weak in their faith uh, one is that they didn't understand the present implications of the gospel. They they didn't understand fully what it means to be in Christ. Paul isn't saying that the weak aren't saved, or they're not saying that they don't trust Christ. It's just that they don't fully understand what it means to be in the new covenant and to live in grace, and that you are literally free because your life is now set apart and uni- set apart to God and unified with Christ. Okay. Jesus said you could eat all meat. Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. He declares all foods clean. In fact, there was a situation where Peter, he is, he's come to, obviously, he believes in Jesus. He's actually doing the work of an evangelist. But he's not eating any of the unclean meat, right? From his, he was had carryover from his Jewish practices. And so God gives us his vision. Do you remember that? Acts chapter 10, verses 15 through 16. And, and he says, listen. What God has declared clean, no longer consider unholy. Remember, there are these animals, and he says, kill Peter and eat. And he's like, ah, I've never done that before. I've never would eat those kind of animals. God said, I want you to understand what it means to be in grace. And so you grow and you develop, and it takes time. But for some people, they didn't understand the implications of the gospel. They were still growing in that. I was talking with my neighbor uh, he's an engineer, and we're just so happy to be talking about bridges. And so, okay, we're talking about bridges. I don't know a lot about bridges. But he's talking about, like, he was going, and he was uh, by Saba, and there's a bridge. It's the only suspension bridge in Texas that you can still drive over, okay? It's a single-lane bridge. And he got up to it, and he's like, whoa, here's this thing. He's, like, looking at it. He didn't feel comfortable driving over this little one-lane bridge. It's all hanging up there. So he parks his truck, and he starts licking it over and sizing it up. And while he's doing that, there's a rancher that he's got his truck, and he's got a bunch of cattle, and he's pulling in a trailer, and he just goes tearing over the bridge. And he just watches him like, Well, the bridge didn't collapse or anything. I guess I can cross over. You see, that's kind of how it is. You know, before you understand the implications of the gospel, and as you you might like, I can't do those sort of things. And there's some people that create, like, legalistic behavior, like, They set up all these rules and regulations. Maybe the intent is good, but what it's meant to do is legislate your life. And I I find legalism is actually lethal to a spiritual life. But they don't know what it means to fully be in Christ. They're still learning, hence they don't cross the bridge. But once you start growing in Christ and seeing the Word and understanding the implications of the Gospel, you find we've got a great degree of freedom. Let me tell you something else. Um, why people would not partake in certain things. They had, they didn't feel like they could. They were weak in the faith, so to speak. And that is past associations. The ex-hippie, he doesn't think that the 60s were harmless, okay? He didn't think like that was just a a period of time. You invite him to, we're having a 60s party. It's going to feel uncomfortable. In case you wonder if that's anybody in our church, it's not that I'm aware of, okay? They, the sixties for them it wasn't a harmless time. Many of the songs were like anthems to sin and they were the most degrading and destructing kind of sin. It was a decade of LSD and marijuana and free love and homelessness. The tie-dyed t-shirts and the beads and the wigs, these these things were reminiscent of a lifestyle that was far and distant from God and frankly they were the philosophies of people that were long dead from drug overdose and they don't the whole idea of of coming to a sixties party. If they were really involved in that culture before they came to Christ, they really they can't have anything to do with it. That music, those actions, that those just even the clothing throws them off and they don't feel comfortable. Don't take this weakened faith as some sort of derogatory term. It speaks of a person's development. And past associations with. Pagan rituals prevented certain people to be involved in certain activities. And so he says in verse 3, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. Don't miss this. For God has accepted him. You and I, we're not to regard people with contempt because why? Who's accepted him? God has. You see, God has welcomed the person. He's done so with grace. He brings acceptance, and you and I, we are to convey the grace that God gives to us. That's the kind of people that we're to be known for. Really, Romans 14:1 1 is one bookend. If you want to see the other bookend, it's in 157, and he says, "Therefore accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God." How has God accepted us? graciously. Unmerited favor. He gives it to us. He bestows it upon us. And that's how you and I are to live. We are to accept people like God has accepted them. And in order for a church to have unity in the midst of all its diversity, you know what needs to take place? Our liberty has to be guided by love. You see, without a sense of love and acceptance and grace, People rarely thrive. If you think by frowning on people and giving them the cold treatment anytime things don't quite go quite your way, being mean spirited is the way to cultivate growth and holiness and godliness, you're mistaken. And I can just tell you, as a as a young Christian, coming to Christ College, I am so grateful for the men and women that helped me in my initial development. I had a lot of rough edges. Okay? needed a lot of help. I didn't have a lot of understanding. Needed real significant help to grow and develop and mature. I needed discipling. And God provided people of grace that allowed me to thrive. That's what he desires. You know, it is demoralizing and disfiguring when pride runs rampant in his people. Your judgmental attitudes and frowning them on people and tearing them up and speaking behind their back and tearing them down and gossiping about them, treating them as misfits, that that never works. You know what needs to take place. The weak, they need to be strengthened. And the strong, they need to be considerate. And all of us, we need to receive one another with grace. That's how we're going to have unity in the midst of a lot of diversity. And let me tell you something else that the text highly emphasizes. Not only do we have to receive one another with grace, but if you and I are going to experience unity in the midst of so much diversity and different opinions and different views on secondary matters, we're going to have to remember our accountability to the Lord. Look at verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Who are you? Who do you really think you are that you're in a position to be casting judgment and making the calls on what right behavior is, what godliness, holiness is. He says, to his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Really, these other people that you're judging, they belong to him. They're other believers. They belong to the Lord. You're not the one who's going to be making the call. It's kind of the equivalent of somebody like this. You're not in a position to go and critique and tear up somebody else's employee, are you? Like, man, that's a really sorry excuse for a worker. Hey, they have someone they report to, and it's not you. That's not your position. As a believer, guess what? We all report to the master, Christ himself. He's Lord, you're not. And notice what the text says. The Lord, see that in verse 4, the Lord is able to make him stand. God is able to bring about maturity. He's able to bring about growth. He's doing it in your life. He's doing it in these other people's lives. You need to extend grace and focus more on the Lordship of Christ. Okay? And so he says, verse 5, One person regards one day above another, and another regards every day alike. Some people have, these are special holy days. Some people are like, man, all the days are holy. They're all set apart to God. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Critically important. You don't check out your mind. You fully engage it. And you come to a place where you're convinced, this is what God is calling me to do. Now, it may be that others, other believers hold different views, different opinions, have different preferences. That's totally fine. You, though, be fully convinced in your own mi- mind. Then he says, verse 6, He who observes the day... He observes it for the Lord. you see that? And he who eats, he does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he who gives thanks, gives thanks to God. So the idea is that everything you do, you're doing for the glory and the honor of God. Whether you're drinking orange juice, you're eating pizza, you're observing certain days, how you go about your life is to be utterly Christ-centered, I want all of my life, my behavior, my actions, and my attitudes to reflect and honor the glory of God. That is the Christian life. That is grace. That's how we're going to thrive in the midst of diversity and have a great degree of unity. You see, days and diets, that's not the issue. Do you know what? That's not the issue. The issue is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Are we truly honoring and looking to him? And you see in verse 7, or verse 6, where he talks about giving thanks? This is the first time in all of Christian literature that we have a reference of giving thanks for the food we eat. You ever wonder, like, so why is it that we pray before we eat? Why do we do that? Where did that come from? Well, it comes from this text. And it also comes from, actually, the practice of Judaism. The Jewish believers in God always gave gave thanks for the food that they were receiving. And so that is carried over. And that is what we do. Because we recognize that even the food that I'm eating, God was sovereign and good to provide, and I thank him for it. And so he says, verse 7, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the what? Lords. Everything about our life. Even how we die, we're all about him. We belong to him, we serve him, we grow in him, we reflect him, but we are all about the Lord. And so he says, this is how you and I are to live. For he says, verse 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves is this, Am I treating people as though they belong to the Lord? Am I treating them as though they belong to the Lord? You know, it's foolish to think that people mature overnight. And frankly, you may not be as mature as you think you, you are. Right? We're all in process. And there is one Lord. I want to make this statement. No Christian has the right to play God in another christian's life you don't have that right you're not god you're not the lord you can pray you can advise you can admonish but you can never take the place of god remember uh peter he denied jesus three times cursed didn't know him remember all that after the resurrection jesus appears and he actually restores peter he asks him do you love me and three different times peter says yes you know i love you and he says, I want you to do something. I want you to feed my sheep. Well, it wasn't too long after that, that Peter's standing there before Jesus. He's already been commissioned what to do. And Peter notices there's someone walking behind him. And he looks and, whoa, there's John, the apostle that Jesus loves, who happened, didn't run away when Peter did. And Peter goes, hey, 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 what about this guy? What about John? And remember what Jesus said to him? If I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You Follow me. Listen, you focus on Peter. You focus on following me, fixing your eyes on what on me and what I've called you to do. Don't be so worried about others. I'm going to take care of John just like I'm going to take care of you. You see, people's practices and their issues, they may be your concern, but they are not your responsibility. That's so really helpful when you're hearing about all these issues or you're seeing different things. It could be a concern of yours, but you need to handle yourself with grace under the lordship of Jesus, but it's ultimately not your responsibility. In fact, he says there is going to be a judge and a judgment, but you're not it. Look at verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Honestly, what's behind all this judgmental attitude? Or are you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we, notice Paul includes himself, all of us, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And Paul actually spelled this out in 2 Corinthians 5, like the verse 10, that speaks of this Bema seat judgment. And it's not a judgment like whether or not you're going to be in the presence of the Savior and go to heaven Because that's all been satisfied at the cross. When God takes his just wrath, pours it upon Jesus, who dies in our place, rises again, so he can authentically offer genuine spiritual life to all who believe. If you believe in Christ, judgment for sin has been settled permanently, forever, because of Christ and your faith in him. But you will, on the other hand, be evaluated and judged on what you did with what God gave you gave you life, arms that work, you got a brain. Some of you are super intelligent. Some of you got a lot of education. Some of you have a lot of money. You got talents. You have gifts given to you by God. Do you know you are going to be held in account? What did you do with what I gave you? For the person that's like living for themselves, like, "Eh, I really don't want to get too involved with God's kingdom work because I got my own life to live and my own kingdom to build. There's going to be a judgment and all that's not done for God and His glory and in His strength It all like seems to burn away, according to the text. And for that which you invested in Christ's strength, for Christ's glory, for the advancement of his kingdom, the littlest thing of like even giving a little cup of cold water to someone is gonna be rewarded. And likely those rewards mean greater responsibility in the eternality where we we are with Christ and we live with him and, and we're going to receive rewards that are going to be significant. But it's based upon what you do with what you've been given. But make no mistake, there's going to be a judgment. And Christ is the one who's going to do it. In fact, he even says, quoting there from the book of Isaiah, 45, 23, verse 11. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. One day there's going to be a judgment. And everybody is going to be judged. And so how are we to live? Well, look at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Paul's basically saying, I know this judgmental attitude is going on. I know there's people that are tearing people apart, and they are tearing the church apart. Stop it. Let it not be done anymore. But rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Don't impede a person's development. A stumbling block has any attitude or action where you cause another believer to sin or get confused about God's character or his purposes. You're creating an impediment. You're blocking the work of God. And it comes from a judgmental, divisive, cold, mean-spirited heart. God says, "I I want to address that. I want there to be grace flowing through your life. I want you committed to the Lordship of Christ. Reparatus Meldenius um, said it will. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. That's how you and I, we're going to have unity. And then it's a lot of diversity. Let me just give you a... Some just practical applications and some guidelines for growing strong together. One, express grace with yourself and with others. Be gracious to yourself. Grow in grace and do so with others. Love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. I'll tell you, at the men's retreat, I had the privilege of uh, leading a, a young guy. To Christ, and he spent a long time answering questions, questions about atheism, Old Testament, and this guy just gave a, an amazing just prayer as he just gave his life over to the Lord, understanding it's going to cost him something. When he comes back next week, he's been coming to our church for seven months. I want him to experience grace where he's well received, where this scripture just comes to life. We're all got rough edges. We all have things that God is working on us. We need to love like Jesus. We need to extend grace because we are the church. We need to be guided by the truth of Scripture when developing our convictions. Don't take your cues from anybody. Don't just like, Grant, what do you think on this? That's going to be my view. No, I want you to see what does the Scripture say. Romans 4.3, what does the Scripture say is the most important question. When you move toward maturity, do so with wisdom. Let me give you a good text. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, All things are lawful to me, but all, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be mastered by any. You know, there's a lot of things that you could do, but maybe you shouldn't, right? There's things that I'm free to do, but I've got reasons why I'm not going to do that. And you need to guide your liberties that you have, and you do so with wisdom. Let me give you a couple others. Be mindful that the church is unity in Christ in community. Unity in Christ in community. And then finally, keep in mind that everyone is a work of progress. You know what God desires for a church to be? A haven of grace. People growing in Christ. And that takes a commitment to be gracious one another, and it forbids us from being condemning and judgmental. Really, at fellowship, we're like an orchard. And we're like an orchard where we got some, we have like a sapling, like that young man who places faith in Jesus. And he's just like brand new in Christ, little itty bitty. You step on him, you're probably going to really damage him. And then we have folks that are really growing in their relationship with Christ And as their, as their roots are going into the soil of Jesus, just like a tree drawing nutrients and water and nourishment. They're starting to come grow forward and they're starting to branch out and bear fruit. We have a lot of people like that. Really growing and maturing, and then at fellowship, we have a lot of people that are really mature in Christ, bearing all sorts of fruit. I mean these like they're like gigantics, people of the faith. they're like awesome to be around, they're so kind, they're considerate. The love of Jesus seems to just eke out of them. Friends we're a, like a giant orchard, and we have people at every different state step. What we need to be focused on is maturity, of growing deep in Christ and reaching out, branching out with his love. And friends, we will be gracious with others to the degree that we love. Our love will be put on display and examined and tested. You see, if diversity does not have to be divisive when our liberty is guided by love. There's a guy by the name of Lou Gavarius, and he writes of a young man, a college kid named Bill. Kid, wild haired, kind of dressed crazy holes in his t-shirt, uh, you know, jeans that were kind of all messed up. Didn't like to wear shoes, you know, you know, people like that. And apparently Bill had been going to a Bible study on campus and lo and behold God draws him to the son and places his faith in Jesus and he believes and he's a brand new Christian. Kind of still dresses the way he does and uh, several weeks after he had placed his faith in Christ he decided to go to church and there was a church nearby campus and so he walked in there, kind of strange place there, and the place is packed out. He didn't actually know what time church started and everything, but he shows up, just kind of wearing as is, jeans, holding a T-shirt, no shoes. He's trying to find a place to sit, and the place there's not a place to sit. And so he keeps walking, thinking like, surely up front there'll be a place. And he gets up front, and there, there's nowhere to sit. So he just plops himself down right there, and everybody's kind of church is watching this. It's getting kind of awkward. The pastor had just walked up; he's going to start his message. But he's watching this scenario, and so there's this college kid, wild-haired kid, sitting right there. And then in the back, uh, an older gentleman in a three-piece suit and a cane gets up. And he starts making his way with his cane. And people like, are thinking, like, isn't going to take that cane and use it on that kid and teach him a lesson or what? And he watches him come down. Here you got the college kid. And he's like, okay, we're we just sitting here. Okay, I guess I'll sit here. And this older guy comes with his cane, and then he he sets his cane down and, Look his aching old body. He, he could tell it was painful. He gets down and he gets down on the ground and he sits next to that college kid. That pastor, you know, he's just kind of sitting up there watching all this, just like everybody else. And then he said this, you know what I'm about to say? You're never going to remember. But what you saw just now, you will never forget. And friends, that's the church in action see, diversity does not need to become divisive when liberty is guided by love. Let's pray. And I want to give you a minute just to take these matters before the Lord. Ask him how he would have you respond to this text. And if there's some judgmental attitudes that need to be confessed, why don't you talk with him right now. So in just a minute, I'll continue in prayer. I thank you that you're a God of grace and you are gracious with us, always. Even when we've not been so gracious with others. Even in gentleness, you bring about correction and you help us grow and mature. And Father, for someone who has come here today who has never trusted in Christ and they see their great need for Jesus, for forgiveness of sins, for life, hope, strength, the Spirit of God residing within them. they simply pray with me and say, God, I I turn from myself, my wickedness, my sin, my self-centeredness, and I place my faith in Jesus, and I ask you to be the Lord of my life. And Father, for all of us, would you continue the work that you've started for your glory? May we be a community of grace, of love, of Christ-centeredness, Would you continue this good work that you started for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name.